The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Zephaniah chapter 3, 8 through 10. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Therefore, in light of the brokenness that's going on all around you, wait for me. In light of the hurt that's been done for you, wait for me. In light of the sustained battle that you're having with your own fleshliness, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For, for, wait for me, for, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, will bring my offering. Last week, we looked at the first of two reasons why the remnant in Zephaniah's day, those who were humble and who would be increasingly humble, those who were keeping the way of the Lord and would be increasingly walking in righteousness, those people who truly wanted to honor God in the midst of a world of injustice, in the midst of bodies of decay, those who truly were pursuing the Lord, they were to wait upon God because He still intended to eradicate evil to overcome brokenness, to put away with tears and toxins. He's saying, I'm going to do it, so don't give up now. Don't give up. Keep waiting on me. Wait for the Lord because or for my decision is still the same. There's going to be a great ingathering, and part of that ingathering will include the overriding the destruction of all that we call evil. Because I haven't changed. I am still jealous, he says. That's what he says there. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. But that's only one reason why people are called to wait on God. The second reason is given in verse 9, and that's why the verse begins with the word for. So there's a parallel here. Wait for me, in verse 8, for my decision is to gather nations. Wait for me, for at that time, when I do this great in gathering, at that very time, I'm going to bring a transformation. And what I want us to do today is consider the nature of the transformation and when Did Zephaniah anticipate it would come? And how should we think about it? Is it future? Or is it already fulfilled? How are we to understand the nature of this prophecy that was given 722 years before Christ came? So, the Lord's promise that through judgment at that time, He will bring a global restoration. So the timing. The timing of this transformation is when He brings judgment down. When the fires of God are poured out upon humanity. Do you see that? Verse 9 follows directly upon verse 8. 
My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all of my burning anger. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. At the very time when judgment comes, new creation will come. That's what he says here. At that time. So there's hope that he's trying to well up inside of his remnant hearers, those who are for God and not against God. He's saying, keep trusting. I want you to pursue persevering, patient, trusting God. Because at the very time when judgment comes, as surely as it will, know this, things are going to get better. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. This morning, in our psalm, Psalm 14, I was struck, I wrote it down in my margin, Have they, these fools who say there is no God, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers, now listen to what the two things that the evildoers do. They eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord. They have no love of neighbor and they have no dependence on God. That's what the fool looks like. So what you have is God's judgment in Zephaniah coming down upon the fool. Those who have no love of neighbor and have no dependence on God. And God says, through this fire, I'm going to save. And the two things that I'm going to bring about are, look at verse 9, they will, on the other side of purified speech, call upon the name of the Lord, dependence, and serve Him together. One accord. United. Not against the neighbor, but seeing the absolute need to be standing side by side, working in unity. It's the opposite of what a fool is. God's going to move people from foolish to wise through judgment, through fire. He's going to birth something new. Pastor Jason identified Romans chapter 3. Paul simply says, there's no one righteous. Everyone's a fool apart from one. The last Adam comes. He is the righteous one. And then we try to find refuge in Him. My decision at that time is to change the speech of the peoples. Now, there's been a speech problem for centuries at this point. This type of speech problem. There's there's an echo going on here, though. See if you can figure out the echo. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word rendered for speech here is tongues or languages. Now let's see how it works. I'll change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, not just the people. This is broader than Israel. This is about peoples being transformed, not just one people group. And then notice who they are. From beyond the rivers of Cush, that's ancient Ethiopia, present-day Sudan. Cush is the word for black Africa in Zephaniah's day. It was considered the farthest most reaches of the globe. The peoples of the world were as far south as Cush, or one step beyond. And this says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, he's got worshipers down there, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. Okay, we have dispersed ones, and now those dispersed ones have a daughter. Those dispersed ones have a language speech problem. They're not calling upon the name of the Lord. They're not serving Him with one accord. 
There's not a heart of dependence and there's not love of neighbor among those who were dispersed. But now, through judgment, God's going to come and change the speech of the peoples. Their language or their tongue is going to be transformed. Language might throw us off a little bit because it doesn't say they're going to get a full-blown new language. It simply says their profession is going to be different. Notice how it says, it will change the speech of the peoples from an impure speech to a purified speech. They're going to be able to talk right, but this is more than talking. For out of the, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And what are they professing? They're calling upon the name of the Lord. God, help me, like Hannah, the barren one, crying out to her God. Like David, declaring, this day, Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, so that all the world may know that He is God in Israel. The one who delivered me from the paw of the lion and of the bear, will indeed, Saul, show up in this event. He's going to bring victory, calling upon the name of the Lord. A unified profession and a unified service. That's what we get here that they may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. So, anybody have any sense for uh, background here? My answer is on the screen. <laughs> How many saw it coming? The, the background to what appears to be this text. This is a reversal text. Who is it who, who were the dispersed ones who had a tongue problem? Who were they? Anybody? People of the Tower of Babel. Let's just recall Genesis 11, verse 9. So these people... By their very nature, they gather together in order to build a city. And they're seeking a name for themselves, we're told. In contrast, Adam gave birth to Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain killed Abel, and in doing so, he showed that he was not of the seed of the woman. Remember, there's two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain's identified himself as the murderer that Satan was from the beginning. And therefore, she needs a new seed. And she gives birth to Seth. And in the days of Seth, it says in Genesis chapter 4, 26, what did people begin to do? Call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we're looking at here in our text. People began to call upon the name of the Lord in the days of Seth. And that calling upon the name continued all the way up through the days of Noah. One, at least one member in each generation. Ten generations of remnant that are surrounded. I've got my hand in three parts of my Bible. That are surrounded by people who have speech problem. They're not dependent and they're not loving their neighbor. And the wickedness of impurity continues to build and build and build until God has to bring the flood. But He preserves Noah and his family. Noah found grace. Translated favor in the ESV. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. Now these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all of his ways. Noah was righteous, blameless. Noah walked with God. Why? How? Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 8.21, the eight people come off the ark. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Eight individuals, that's all that's left on the globe. And there we hear the restatement of Genesis 6.5. All men are wicked from their youth. 
Their hearts are far from God. There was nothing different about the people that came off that ark than those who died in the waters. At their core, they were one and the same. The only difference was external, not internal. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It changed who he was. It changed him. It it overcame the resilience of his own heart. He found grace. But then, Noah has three sons, and they begin to go their own way. They begin to multiply. In the process, there's a gathering of this multiplied group. Seventy families gathered at Babel to build a name for themselves. And into that context, they're trying to build a tower. It's probably like a Mesopotamian ziggurat is what they're building. A temple. A stair-stepped pyramid. They're building this temple in order to get close to God. And the text tells us God had to come down in order to see what they were doing. He came down to see the city and the tower that the children of men had built. And he said, behold, they are one people united. God wants unity. He wants people in one accord, but he wants those that are in unity to be equally surrendered to him. Unity that is hostile to God demands judgment. And in this text, he disperses it. So it says... They have one language, one tongue, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will to do will now be impossible for them. Come, therefore, let us go down, potentially talking to his uh, heavenly council, let us go down, could be inter-Trinitarian talk, but I, I'm not certain, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them. There's the same word we have in our text. He dispersed them from there over all the earth. As far as the boundaries of Cush? Yes. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Or it's the exact same word. They could have just translated it. Babylon. That's what it is. The city is called Babylon because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. The language of the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. There is a tongue problem. And it results in dispersion. And now we come back to our text and what it tells us is At that time of judgment, God's going to enter in and change the tongue. The very daughter of the dispersed ones, all of them set, pushed to the utter ends of the earth. Now their daughter, offspring of of human sinners, are going to be transformed through judgment in a way that's going to result in new profession. A pure speech, not impure. Impurity of speech comes from hostile, God-hostile hearts. And what this is envisioning is that in the end of days, God's going to be transforming people on the other side of judgment into dependent, calling upon God folk and those that are strong in the body, serving Him in one accord. Tower of Babel. Yeah. So when it says at that time, I will change the speech of the people. We have already read that God's going to pour out His judgment and wrath on on the sinful, you know, nations. And when it's so, this is one of the questions I don't know if anybody knows. It's like it's like we're all unrighteous. God saves a remnant. Well, I mean, God, there is a remnant in here. But I don't know, is it purely on the basis of, of his declaration of grace to undeserving people? Or is there a sense in which 
there are the fools who uh, deny God, and they are wiped out, and there's another part of the population whose hearts aren't as, aren't as close. I mean, I don't know if you can know that, but I don't know. I want to know who's, who's not going to get burned in the fire that was the gathering. The question is, in Zephaniah's mind, who's not going to get burned in the fire before the gathering? That's what you said. Well, we can go backward and we can go forward to answer that question. Let's go backward to chapter 2, verse 3. Who's not going to get burned? Let's actually go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather. Be bundled up, O shameless nation, you desireless nation, before the decree takes effect. The decree of judgment, the decree of verse 18, when the fire of his jealousy consumes the earth. There's still hope for you. Bundle yourselves together so that you don't have to face this dread on your own before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. There's the remnant theme. Who do His just commands. You're already humble. You're already following. Now, seek Him increasingly. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Who? It will only be those who meet that qualification. These are not the self-elevated. No, they're humble. That's what it says in chapter 2, verse 3. These are not the, I'm going to do this my way. No, they're pursuing the commands of God. And yet, they're not bringing to the table a sense of, I'm in. They're bringing this sense of intrepidation, perhaps. Perhaps. I don't want to presume on the grace of God, and yet Zephaniah is clear. He's made amazing promises. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 9. Both of them mention the remnant that's going to be preserved through the judgment. He's going to bring great judgment. He's going to put down the enemies. And then he's going to inhabit the very homes of those he's put down with his faithful remnant. Now we come to this text and we see there's a people that have been preserved through the fire. And so the question that I have is, how are we to read this fire? How are we to understand what this text is talking about. So, somebody read for me Psalm 87, 3 and 4, first off. Psalm 87, 3 and 4. I just, I love this text. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre, Ruth Kush, this one was born there, they say. That was it. That was it. So, in Psalm 87, the city of God, what's the city of God? Jerusalem or Zion. Not the present day one, the, that's the picture, the real one. And associated with that city, listen to this. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Jerusalem. Among those who know me, let me just throw out a few names. Rahab. Babylon. Philistia. Tyre. And who else? Cush. Now, get this. This is what they're declaring. They say this. This one was born there. Born where? Jerusalem. Rahab. Born in Jerusalem. Babylon, born in Jerusalem. Philistia, Tyre, Cush. They've gotten new birth certificates. That's what this is saying. Mine says Petoskey, Michigan, where Jason DeRoshi was born. I could just as legitimately say New Jerusalem, 
Because somehow this, these people, and they're not Jews. No, those who are listed, associated with Jerusalem, are those from the far lands. Those who were the enemies of Israel have all of a sudden become their friends. Indeed, they've become part of the family. Indeed, you look at their certificate of adoption, There's their birth certificate, and it's got a different name. I have three birth certificates. One that says... Wendemagen Jason Deroshi. My, and then another one that says Joseph Wendem Deroshi. I have a Sitota Jason Deroshi. And then I have a Sarah Joy Sitota Deroshi. I have an Adisu. I don't remember his middle name. Oh, that was mine. Adisu Jason Deroshi. And now I have an Ezra Adisu Deroshi. And when I give someone their birth certificate, I don't give them the first. I give them the new one. And it is absolutely legitimate because they have become full-blown Deroshis with a new name. Now there was... Probably in their situation, three children from ancient Cush, three Ethiopians, no birth certificates in their situation. So they had to create one. And it was created in the context of an adoption. And the first name they got was their first name, my first name, even for my daughter, and then my last name. But then when they, when the adoption became fully official here in the States, we applied to get their names transformed, and everything looks different. Everything. This is their new identity. They are built into the family as if there's no change. And that's what God is saying He's going to do. Through judgment, He has picked out individuals who are going to be preserved through the fire and gain new names, new identities, with a new address. Notice what it's saying in the end of verse 10. Beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. They're going to bring it somewhere. Where are they going to be? Well, where's God? What does it say back in chapter 3, verse 5? The Lord within her is righteous. Where's God? Where? Where? He's in the new Jerusalem. He was in the old Jerusalem and then he left. And then the Old Testament has no sign that his presence ever returned. Until, until when? When did God return to his temple? First Advent, okay. Brother Rick. I love to see brothers engage in Bible memorization. If they don't memorize each Scripture verse, then their wives have to nudge them when they get too far in their recitations. But nevertheless, when you come, the Word became flesh. Sorry, in the beginning was the Word in John chapter 1, and then... Where does it go when it, we get to verse 14? The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacled. He, His presence, the, the, this is filled with Old Testament illusion. The presence of God in the person of Jesus is coming and filling the temple. So that Jesus can say in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up. Wait a second, it took us 46 years to build this thing. And then John adds commentary. What does he say? What does he say? He was speaking about the temple of his body. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, envisions a day 
It shall come to pass in the end times, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. All many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways. And that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. Uh, Later in Isaiah, this is what we read. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it... Heard in the streets a bruised reed. He shall not break. A faintly burning wick he shall not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he established, has established justice in all the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah chapter 2, the nations will gather to the presence of God in Jerusalem to hear the law. And then it says, when my servant, Jesus, comes, the same servant that will suffer on our behalf, Isaiah 53, be bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brings us peace, unified, calling on the name of the Lord, peace, that Jesus will proclaim the law. And people will hear it and be saved. All through his suffering. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Wait for the Lord, for I have determined a day to judge evil. The fires of my wrath will pour down, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I will change the tongue of this people to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. Any New Testament texts that come to mind? Okay, Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who... Bring good news. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it can happen today. And as you call upon the name of the Lord, you are identifying with those who have journeyed through the fires of God and yet somehow been hidden, protected from the flame. Any other text that identifies a reversal of, okay, you've got dispersed ones from all over the world. Acts 2. How about we just go there? Acts 2. Turn with me in your Bible there. Keep your finger in Zephaniah chapter 3 and you tell me if you think Luke may just have something in mind. Acts chapter 2. Let's begin by recalling another call on the name of the Lord text. First off, chapter 2 verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the exact word that's used in the Greek translation in Zephaniah 3.9. Then, how about 2.21 and 38? It shall come to pass that everyone who what? Calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's citing Joel... Well, let's just put all this into context. They're speaking in tongues, and you have people from how far and wide? Look at verse 6. Sorry, 
Verse 5 and 6. How far and wide are they? Those that are gathered. Every nation under heaven. None of which would have been realized apart from the judgment at the Tower of Babel. And now they've all gathered in? At the sound of the tongues, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. How is it, they say in verse 8, that we hear each of us in his own native tongue? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. There's one people group that's not mentioned there. There's many, but there's a noticeable one that's missing. What is it? Cush. Yes. So, they're seeing the mighty works of God, and they say, oh, these men are drunk. No, Peter jumps in and he says, no. It's 11 a.m. in the morning. That's not our custom. Instead, this is to fulfill. Notice verse 16. To fulfill what was uttered through the prophet of Joel, prophet Joel, in the last days, in the latter days, in the end times. Hear that. We already read that in Isaiah chapter 2. Same exact phrase. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be elevated. Here, in the latter days, it shall be. God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men see visions, their old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit, and their tongues are going to be transformed, proclaiming the goodness and the greatness of God. That's what's being fulfilled right here, he says. Don't look to the future. No, it's now, he says. Not only that, notice, I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. Chapter 2 of Joel begins by saying, This is what's going to happen at the day of the Lord. And now this tells us before the day comes, the nature of the day, the Spirit of God poured out. Before the day comes, darkness, gloom, clouds and thick darkness. Well, that's Zephaniah chapter chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, a day of... Distresses that day. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of battle cry. Trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. That's the fire of God's jealousy. And that's going to come before the day of the Lord happens. That's that's what marks the day. And he's saying, it's already been fulfilled. When did the sky grow dark? When did it get black? When did God bring the terror of His judgment down on the earth? When did it happen? At the cross. And what was birthed from the cross is new creation. Now, that day of wrath did not come at the cross for everyone. Hear me. This is still a reality to be anticipated with dread for all who are asleep and in darkness. No, the future day of wrath intruded into the present. The new creation came in an overlap of the ages with the original creation. One second, I've got it here. The new future came in in the first advent of Jesus. It entered in, bringing with it the fiery judgment of God. And Jesus stands there, holding Himself, holding back the fires of God's wrath as He looks into the eyes of every single one of you and declares, you are mine. You are mine. I am here to save you from the wrath of the living God. And all the fires are just blistering His own body, 
while He's looking at us and protecting us from this. And from that is birthed a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come already. And yet for those who don't stand in the shadow of the cross, there is no provision. There is no protection. Remember how chapter 1 verse 7 talked about the day of the Lord. What was the image that was used? The day of the Lord is... What? Chapter 1 verse 7. What is the day of the Lord? It's near, but it's... The Lord has prepared what? A sacrifice. And John the Baptist says, Friends, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus at the cross bears the day of the Lord that is future. He bears it for us in the present, but only for those who are bound up in the shadow of the cross. For all others who do not experience the shadow, that protecting hand of God, the day of the Lord is still coming. And when it comes, it will be wrathful and fiery. And there will be no hope at all. But this text assumes an already and not yet reality. That's how we have to read it. Because the truths of verses 9 and 10 are already happening today. So, men of Israel, hear these words, verse 22. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Acts chapter 2, 22. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up from the dead. So 2.21 says, quoting Joel, It shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you get to verse 38, and the people are torn in their hearts. What must I do? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you. It's for you. Unity. They will call upon the name of the Lord, and serve Him with one accord. How, do you ex- how else could you explain this language? They devoted themselves in that day to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. God was birthing the very new creation that was anticipated here. Now there's one people group that wasn't mentioned explicitly. Who was it? Cush. There is only one people group that serves as Exhibit A outside the borders of Jerusalem. He's met after the resurrection by Philip. Who is he? He's in a chariot. Who is he? The Ethiopian. Why give this case study when there was probably so many others? The tongues are transformed. They're calling upon the name. They're unified around God, serving Him and loving one another. And then, as far as the rivers of Cush, ancient Ethiopia, that's how uh, the people in Luke's day would have understood what Cush was. They wouldn't have understood the language of Cush, but they knew Ethiopia. It was, I mean, that's, that's, that's how it was rendered. In Greek, global impact from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. So, takeaway is I think we are called in this text to embrace the fact that the church is actually fulfilling Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. To not deny it to embrace it, and to let it motivate in our souls a mission because we are here in the overlap of the ages before the great day 
comes. Remember, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to set free the captive, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a whole year, and to... And then he, he stops right there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but Isaiah continues with what? A year of favor and... The day of the vengeance of our God. When Jesus quotes this text in the Gospels, He stops with, this is how He inaugurates His ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He's proclaimed me to bring good news, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, roll up the scroll, today these, this is fulfilled in your hearing. In His first appearing, He comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now those who are in Him carry on the work of the Son. And those who are in us now identified. How does Hebrews chapter 12 says? We have come to the Jerusalem that is above. We're not at Mount Sinai where flaming fire existed and where even Moses stood in fear. No, we have come to the new Jerusalem. Already we're there. And then Revelation chapter 21 we are awaiting the day where that Jerusalem, that where we already have new birth certificates, already identified with that Jerusalem, will come to earth. Jesus' death initially fulfills Zephaniah 3 for the elect, inaugurating new creation. He's the substitute Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose sacrifice saves us from the wrath of God. By His blood, we are saved from the wrath of God. But the most of the world is not. We need to feel the weightiness of the wrath of the living God and move us to motivate others toward mission. Christians are already... Notice, go back to Zephaniah now. Notice the language of serving God. And then that serving is matched by another image at the end of verse 10. Bringing offerings. Serving and bringing offerings to the living God in Jerusalem. This seems to me very likely a priestly image. And all of us are now part of a new kingdom. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, in order that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Indeed, you are a people who are called to offer sacrifices of praise. Offer sacrifices of good deeds and thanksgiving even as we await for Jerusalem to come to earth. Somebody read for me 1 Peter chapter 2 verse, uh, verse 5. 1 Peter 2 5 and somebody else Hebrews 12 22. Who will take 1 Peter? 1 Peter 2 5. Steve, thank you. Hebrews 12 22. Who will take that one? Thank you. Go ahead, Steve. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. They will come from as far as Cush to offer gifts to the Lord. Jerusalem in this picture is getting filled up with people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And they're taking on priestly roles of offering sacrifices. And I think that's why the New Testament authors talk about our praise and our surrender, daily surrender to God this way. Hebrews chapter 12, 22. You're there. Already there. 
The prophetic ingathering, I believe, is already happening. Not complete, but happening already, right now. The New Testament authors are reading it this, this way. Joel prophesied that this would happen in the latter days. It's the latter days. That's what you're seeing poured out upon you. Hebrews chapter 1, you've heard God spoke to us in various ways in the past through His prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. This is what's being birthed in our midst. So how should we respond? Embrace that the church indeed is fulfilling what was anticipated and act on the fact that God saves worshipers without prejudice. Remember, Zephaniah was a son of Cushi. He's a biracial Jew. Why does he only choose Cush as the only people group? Because he's celebrating that my heritage is not simply Jewish. It stretches all the way down to Ethiopia and God is saving my people. That's the hope I have. He also declares judgment on Cush in chapter 2 verse 11. They're not outside the realm of judgment, but he has saved. God is certainly going to save a people Marvel, the marvel of salvation should motivate missions. And then I cite the text that Steve already mentioned in Romans chapter 10. How beautiful are the feet of Him who bring good news. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And finally, I think that a takeaway for this text is this. Because we're living in the overlap of the ages, it's not all here yet. Not all the evil has been put away, but what the cross does is make it certain. But because not all the evil is put away, the command is still for you and for me. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. For His decision is indeed to eradicate all evil. He will do it. So keep trusting. Keep calling on His name. Dependent living. God help me. And do it in the context of one another serving Him in one accord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the Gospel. That's what Christmas is about. The Gospel. You came in order that You might be the Lamb, in order that we might enjoy salvation. Salvation through the judgment You bore for us so that we wouldn't have to face it. Preserved. We praise You. Help us to live in such a context. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.